Before we get to this week's episode, I want to tell you all about this year's Advertising Week New York. September 23rd to 26th marks the 16th anniversary of Advertising Week New York. Advertising Week is the premier worldwide gathering of marketing, advertising, technology, and brand professionals, and features the best and brightest in the industry. From their inspiring global keynote series to their amazing world-class evening entertainment, Ad Week is one of a kind experience not to be missed. This year, Advertising Week New York returns to the AMC Lincoln Square 13, and with over 1,200 speakers across nearly 300 events, there's definitely something for everyone. A full schedule of Advertising Week New York is available at advertisingweek.com slash New York. Passes are available now. We'll see you there. Again, that's advertisingweek.com slash New York. Hi, I'm Shereen Patrick, and you're listening to Making Marketing by Digiday. Every week, I talk to executives who are changing the marketing playbook for the industry one decision at a time. Have you heard of Fast Furniture? The inside is helping you have. The direct-to-consumer startup is bringing together furniture and fashion in a direct way, creating personalized patterns for home furnishings in an effort to bring affordable, high-quality goods to consumers and doing it very quickly. Joining me today is the inside CMO, AJ Nicholas. Hi, AJ. Hi. We're so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm obsessed with this idea of fast furniture because I think anybody who's ever shopped for any sort of couches, beds, pillows even in their lifetime knows that the last thing that the furniture market used to be was fast. And you guys are trying to change that. Walk us a little bit through how the Insights model works and where sort of it's come from. Sure. So I think, you know, I think you'll see kind of most direct-to-consumer startup brands are really trying to meet holes in the market. And I think, you know, the customer in every other industry is accustomed to getting things really fast. Um, And so we want to deliver that for them. Um, The way that the inside works and the white space that we're really trying to conquer is, I think, in the furniture industry, historically, there's been what I would call a lot of frictionless transactional companies. So the Wayfarers, the Amazons, the Ikeas of the world on one side of the spectrum where they ship things really quickly. It's at an affordable price point. But they're, most of those are having kind of the same furniture options, and you get lost a little bit in this sea of sameness, <laughs> a lot of grays, a lot of beiges. Absolutely. I think I spent like six hours looking for one thing once and just gave up yeah, on one of those sites. exactly. And it's overwhelming because it's not a super curated assortment. Um, and then on the other spectrum, you have these very high design companies um, that are based in, you know, like what's called the D&D building in, in Midtown um, that are these heritage factories fabric brands like Scalamandre and Schumacher. And it's a a pretty gated experience where, Mm -hmm. you know, you may only go there if you're an interior designer. And the assortment there is, you know, beautifully curated. You can make everything custom personalized to you, but it's really long lead times, you know, often four to six months and it's really expensive. Um, So it's not very accessible for the everyday consumer. And so we're really trying to bridge those two experiences and create a company that has the frictionless elements of fast shipping time, um, affordable options, but also the design selection of of the very high end so that you can create what you see on Pinterest and Instagram mm-hmm. and really get, um, you know, get what you ultimately want. So walk me through kind of, you know, let's talk about the consumer journey first and then we'll go kind of behind the scenes. Walk me through sort of a consumer journey. How do most people discover the company? How? What have you found this, as kind of the discovery process that's worked for most people? I know there's probably no one specific way, but what's the most common? 
Sure. So from a marketing perspective, what's really working for us right now is organic acquisition. You know, I think a lot of brands, um, startup brands, the mistake that they often make is trying to explain all the functional benefits of what they do because you think, oh, we're a new company. We need to you know, kind of list out how, how the business works and you use, you lose a little bit of the emotional piece of the business. So, you know, what we've done at the inside is, is really kind of lay out what our mission and our vision is first, which is to make home your most meaningful place. And um, the reason why we want to do that is because that's where most of your real life happens. Mm -hmm. So I think there's been this trend in people really investing in experiences versus things. And I think like at the end of the day, most of us spend a huge amount of our time at home. And so we want people to invest in their home just as much as they're investing in experiences. Right. So, so when you say invest, do you mean money or do you mean time? Because obviously the other big thing that you guys are putting out there is that the stuff doesn't have to be expensive to the point that it's going to break the bank. It's going to be affordable yet high quality. Yeah, not at all. I mean, we we want people to, uh, you know, make make their home a place that they love to be and as exciting as going to Fiji, right? Um, and so that's like really My our... My couch is just like, the, uh, just like the Fiji. I know, I feel like I'm on the beach. Just like Maldives, Fiji, somewhere in there. Um, and so that's really our larger mission. And so what that has done from a, a brand perspective is really create this more emotional brand where, you know, we can really build a content strategy off of that and drive a lot of organic acquisition, you know, versus, you know, kind of hiring growth marketers and, and investing all of our money in, in in paid ads on Facebook and Instagram. And so that's that's really kind of the customer journey today and how mm-hmm. we're getting people to the site. So what kind of content has kind of worked and why has that been sort of the way to go? Because I find that really interesting. We've had lots of, again, so-called DTC. I know that term has started to lose its meaning, but so-called DTC brands on the show before. And I think that like pendulum and that balance between how much effort as marketers do we put in kind of growth and sort of pulling the right levers on Facebook against what you're saying, which is emotional, organic, content-driven. And people keep going back and forth. And it's a really hard balance, but it seems to me that you guys seems to have made quite a strategic decision to kind of go this way. Yeah, I think, you know, I think kind of historically, I think when brand marketers have thought about a content strategy, they've thought about their own marketing channels and how they build a a blog, let's say, and pull people in. And I think that that is a fairly unrealistic strategy <laughs> because let's just call a spade a shovel. An it's e-commerce true. company is going to have a really hard time competing with all of the wonderful media companies that are already out there. Yeah, so when, taking our jobs. Yeah, true. exactly. Um, so when I say content strategy, what I really mean is a push content strategy and not a pull content strategy. So we're thinking about that in three different layers. The first is our category introductions. Mm-hmm. So instead of, you know, like when we first launched the inside and said our big categories are going to be sofas, beds, outdoor and accent furniture, let's launch all those at once. We've strategically kind of layered those uh, launches and created a a content calendar, let's say, Mm. of when we're going to launch each category. So in May, we launched outdoor right before summer. We just launched um, Sofa a couple weeks ago. And so we're really thinking of that as content that we can push out and build marketing arcs around. Okay. Give me an example of sort of what, you know, one of the things that you tried that worked and then give me an example of one that didn't really work. In terms of content in general? Mm-hmm. Well, so one of the things that's working for us from a, from a 
content perspectives are collaborations. So we've done collaborations with everyone from, you know, heritage brands like Scalamandre to SF Girl by Bay, the original Pinfluencer, mm-hmm. and tested, you know, a lot of different collaborations on that spectrum. And really all of them are working. Um, you know, they each kind of appeal to a different customer set. Um, so that's been really interesting to see. Um, the other thing that's working really well from a content perspective is using Christiane, our founder and CEO, as essentially an editor. So we are using her to do contributing columns um, for a couple of media sites um, and all also using our 3D rendering. So as a company, we don't do any photo shoots. We 3D mm-hmm. render everything. And we're able to use those images to push out to media as well. What about one that hasn't really worked or something that you've tried that you're like, okay, I'm not quite sure on this? So we did actually do our our first shoot um, for outdoor. And it was really cumbersome. Um, and I think just spoke to the value of our 3D rendering process because a photo shoot requires resources from Every cross-functional team in the furniture category, it's really tough because you need to find a home to shoot it at. So we actually shot it at one of our investors' homes in in, um, the Hamptons. And you have to order all of that furniture, which has, you know, for us, thankfully, only a three-week lead time. Um, And then afterwards, you have to find somewhere to store it. So it's a pretty cumbersome process, not to mention, you know, all the internal team's time and money spent on it. So, you know, in the future, we're really going to focus on the 3D renderings more. Um, we sort of covered where we started covering a little bit of the consumer journey. So again, so they kind of find you mostly through sort of push content. How do you sort of move people or what have you found that works kind of when it comes to moving people down that funnel? Because I think, again, we're looking at a lot of really interesting sort of consumer attributes here. I mean, people are used to kind of getting discounts once they land on a site. They're used to getting that like follow-up email after being like, we saw you checking this out. Here's 20% off. What are some of the more kind of tactical levers, kind of some market or whether it is those things or anything else that you found works to actually start getting people to, one, be introduced to the idea, then feel comfortable with the idea, and then finally actually take out their credit cards and make a purchase. Yeah, I think that's where your own channels really start to come into play, like once you've gotten that lead gen and gotten the person in the door. Um, So email acquisition is working well for us for that. Our Instagram has really robust lifestyle images that people seem to love. You know, and in the furniture industry, it's it's not a quick turnaround. It's not like someone signs up and buys that week. Um, You know, they wait until they have a bed or they decide to buy pillows right away and then eventually they buy a bed. Mm. Um, So it's oftentimes a really, you know, long customer journey um, in this category. And so pushing them down the funnel is really important. I think the other thing that, you know, is unique to our business and really helps is every, all of our furniture is personalized. Mm -hmm. 80% of our customers right now buy something unique. Meaning, you know, we don't we we couldn't provide like here's our top 10 SKUs that doesn't really exist in our business because there's so many unique combinations. But I think that gets the customer to pull the trigger faster than they otherwise might because Mm. they're able to, you know, find what they they want. Like, you know, in your experience, you'd mentioned, you know, if you're on Wayfair, Amazon, you know, it's not a curated experience. You can spend tons and tons of time searching. That doesn't really exist on our platform because you can create ultimately what you want. How does this work on the back end now? Because furniture is just fascinating, like many other categories, obviously big, cumbersome, but you've essentially created a model that I guess takes out that holding a ton of inventory just 
out of the equation altogether. Walk us through sort of the logistical and sort of the shipping and how all of that comes together to make this a reality. So we kind of talked about the front end. Let's talk about the back end. Absolutely. So the supply chain is really where most of our innovation happens um, and most of our disruption. So the way that the, the process works is a customer will come to the site, create their personalized order, and check out. We then start the process of creating that piece of furniture on demand. We have, you know, a couple of different uh, manufacturers across the U.S., depending on the category. So we digitally print all of our fabrics. Mm. So your fabric will be digitally printed, and then it's upholstered to that furniture frame. And then it's shipped directly from the manufacturer to the customer rather than shipping it to our own warehouse, which is what a lot of furniture companies do. So we have taken that step out of the process because what happens is that, you know, that just adds margin along the way and cost to the customer. But the reason warehouse is kind of just going back to kind of why this whole convoluted system of having the warehouse and having them hold them existed was because people were kind of just thinking of this as these are big items. People are going to buy them at different sort of lead times. This isn't like buying, I don't know, a pair of shoes. And I think there was this or is still this like held concept in the industry that are people really going to do this online? Are people going to feel comfortable with that kind of direct to consumer mindset coming to something as big and considered as a furniture purchase. Was that tough kind of especially as sort of, you know, you joined the company, but also as you guys were kind of talking amongst yourselves, but also with the industry, was that something that came up often that really are we going to disrupt furniture? This seems hard. Um, our founder and CEO, Christiane, comes from this industry. So she has been in in the home category for a really long time. She previously launched a company called Dwell Studio, which she sold to Wayfair and then came up with the idea for the inside wall so she at Wayfair. She problems firsthand. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, came up with the idea while she was there and then was like, okay, I got to go. And Britt, our other co-founder, came from One King's Lane. So they both have a lot of, of industry experience. I myself, uh, my background is more in fashion fashion and beauty. But I think that there's a lot of parallels there. You know, right now, 40% of the furniture business is done online. And so I think, you know, a lot of players like Amazon and Wayfair have proven that you can do a ton of business Mm -hmm. in furniture online. But I think there's still a ton of market share up for grabs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's go back and talk a little bit more about your marketing. So you've sort of mentioned you've really put a lot of emphasis on kind of the content bit of it. Talk us through a little bit of how you're actually spending sort of your marketing money. Where does where else have you found works? You mentioned your own sort of organic Instagram. Um, where else has been working for you and what else have you tried? Sure. So right now, about 70% of our customer acquisition is organic. The other 30% right now is predominantly from paid Facebook and Instagram ads. Has and- that gotten more expensive recently? Um, more expensive compared to like stage of the business or than it historically was. Historically, Yeah, probably. I mean, I think kind of the days are gone that that can be your entire acquisition strategy, you know, right. as a DTC I mean, there startup. were brands who were entirely built sort of on Facebook at least a few years ago. Yeah. And definitely and I, that's changing. I think that's a very scary proposition to rely solely on that. So, you know, that's a pretty kind of small piece of our spend and our acquisition. Um, we're starting to test Google Shopping, which I think is really interesting for this category. And we'll probably start testing Pinterest soon as well. Talk, talk me through Pinterest a little bit. I find Pinterest sort of fascinating too. I mean, it's, I really admire what they've done sort of as a platform. And I think, you know, they still are sort of figuring out, okay, we're like a discovery place. How do we then move towards becoming an actual conversion place? And a lot of recent improvements there have been fascinating. But for a business like yours, it feels 
tailor-made. What's what's worked for you on Pinterest? You mentioned collaborations with Pinfluencers. Um, love to hear more about that. So right now, all of our, everything that we're doing on Pinterest is organic. Um, you know, so we have our own board, um, you know, doing a lot of kind of pinning and, and curation there. I think in this category, it's really interesting because that's where a lot of people start their search. Mm. You know, I think historically, I think Pinterest has gotten bucketed into a paid social platform like Facebook and Instagram, but the consumer actually uses it much differently and much more similarly to Google search. Mm. And so I think that they're really trying to get advertising advertisers to reframe how they think about Pinterest. Yeah. So they've actually started a kind of D2C disruptor team to work with advertisers and see kind of what advertisers at startups needs are. But I think part of that approach is really reframing how you think of Pinterest because it is more similar to kind of Google search than it is to paid social. And I think if you're comparing kind of the metrics and the KPIs on Pinterest to Facebook, you're, you're never really going to see. Well, it's not really apples to apples at all. Um, What else? um, What else are you trying when it comes to just trying out new platforms or trying out new things? Um, so, you know, we're really excited to test a lot of new channels. We are just in the early stages of our business. So we launched out of beta in July of 2018. So just celebrated one year. So we're just in the very early stages of testing everything. You know, I think direct mail will eventually be an interesting channel for us. I think out of home potentially could be. Mm -hmm. I think the furniture category is unique and there's a lot of, let's say, like marketing channels that you wouldn't traditionally think of. So, for example, the, you know, when you change your USPS address, dress, um, you get a packet, you know, after that, that has a lot of offers from furniture companies. So there's kind of custom, you know, channels like that in this category as well that are really yes, interesting. I remember getting that very great packet with a ton of discounts very recently. So. Yeah. Direct mail is interesting. I find that, you know, one of the big sort of stories here, and I'd love for you to sort of put on kind of your, you know, marketer hat and not just sort of your inside hat, wear two hats at once. Um, it's, it's interesting to me how, I mean, a lot of these brands were like, we're born online. I mean, you, it was founders who were very comfortable with online. They'd grown up in sort of a digitally native sort of time. Marketing can be entirely done through sort of paid social or just social social. And so many of them, again, the pendulum keeps swinging. As a marketer, I find it sort of, I'm wondering if you find it as fascinating as I do, because I always wonder where it's going to land up. Again, all these DTC brands are now saying, well, we're actually going to do TV and it's all starting to look the same. I mean, the term DTC itself feels a little bit like a misnomer because for a lot of these companies, it's not even the business model anymore. They have physical stores. They have, is Patagonia a DTC company? Arguably not. Where does this kind of land up? And I'm curious about how you think about this as sort of like future state, the inside, um, asking you to speculate a little bit, but where does this all go from here? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I think that D2C has become this umbrella term almost for startups, which doesn't really make sense. Like direct to consumer means direct to consumer, right? Where companies own the customer and aren't selling through wholesale. But within the D2C space, there's so many different types of companies. There's marketplaces. Um, You know, there's companies like us that are not single SKU. There are single SKU companies like Casper started out. So I think it's definitely not a one size fits all. I think most startups tend to start, at least in the B2C space, online because it's easiest and it doesn't require as much capital. But I think that's kind of the D, right? Like that's the D. The D being, okay, you're going to go, you just go to our site or 
whatever and buy a thing and then it comes to you. You don't have to do anything else in the middle. Yep. You know, but I think there's certainly still a place for showrooms and retail. And I think when you start online first, it's often easier to create a really interesting showroom experience that pulls in that technology too. You know, I, I spent a lot of my career at Rent the Runway and I think they've done a really incredible job of building an incredible e-commerce business, but then opening showrooms too, both within other retailers um, and, and standalone that mm-hmm. they're not stores. You know, you don't go in there and buy anything. They're really service centers where you can go and try on dresses and rent dresses and swap your unlimited items. Right. Um, right. Does one call kind of a rent the runway a direct to consumer brand? Arguably, yes, because my entire relationship with them is directly with them. I don't have anybody in the middle. Right. Where, so you mentioned showrooms, which is really interesting because then I started sort of thinking, you know, more philosophically, I guess, about if somebody opens a store, then that's not, is that direct or is that still not direct? Or does the, when does the direct relationship, as you see it, kind of change and this says, okay, this is no longer a direct to consumer brand. It is a, just a brand and that's okay. Yeah. Well, direct to me really means owning the customer and the customer can come directly to you. You can go directly to them. You know, so I think I think that same meaning holds true when you're either online or in a store format, really any omni channel. I think direct to consumer ends when you're in a wholesale channel. So, for example, for two years, I ran um, the marketing at Charlotte Tilbury, and that was primarily a wholesale business. Um, So it was much more difficult to have a true understanding of the customer because most of those customers were at Nordstrom or Sephora. And so you didn't have the same analytics as you do in a direct to consumer company. How is data kind of worked is especially as you're kind of you know building out the inside um you obviously get a ton of really useful and interesting information on your consumers and i was particularly struck by what you said earlier which is the purchase for something like furniture doesn't come immediately it's not again like buying a pair of shoes so i'm assuming data really comes in handy when you know that someone's buying this so maybe they also need this or maybe they've hit a certain part of that six month purchase decision making process what are some of the sort of more innovative or interesting ways you've used kind of data to really target your marketing, but also ultimately drive customers? So I think the first is really understanding who the customer is and who you should be targeting. That, you know, I think is is most critical to know first. And then I think the second is really understanding what marketing channels are working and which ones aren't, um, you know, through looking at all of the data. You know, if you're working in a wholesale business or even in a bigger company, I think it's harder to see that pulse of what's working and what's not. And so I think that's one of the benefits of, of working in a D2C company, especially this early stage is you can really get a pulse on what channels are working and what's not in terms of, you know, really valuable insights. um, So one for us that's interesting is a decent size of our future business will be interior designers, um, which in the industry is called trade. And so we are working through currently creating a tagging system to identify those people in the right way and even define who trade is, Hmm. um, because that could be anyone from interior designers to co-working spaces who buy 
hundreds of pillows from us and sofas, et cetera. And so knowing who those customers are is really critical because you want to treat them in a much different way than the direct to consumer segment because right. they're, they, they essentially want to be serviced a lot more. Right. How does that change sort of marketing or just the way you're, you would think about marketing once that gets to that point where it's like, this is going to be, you know, in the future, a pretty big part of our business? Yeah. I mean, it's a different, it's a different acquisition strategy. You know, we essentially made the decision in year one to double down on the direct to consumer segment and wait to focus on trade until we had a more robust marketing team because they are separate channels. And I think to do them well, um, you know, requires more resources. But I think ultimately the way that we'll go after trade is by having more of a Salesforce type team. Um, And I think it'll function a little bit more of a business development effort uh, versus traditional marketing channels. Do kind of physical spaces, physical experiences, now as they're known now, um, I used to just call it shopping, um, sort of how do they figure into kind of the insights growth plans and how do you think of them, especially as marketing vehicles versus, you know, just actual conversion vehicles? Yeah, I think, you know, I think we'll eventually have retail. I think the question is just when and what does that look like for our brand considering you know, we have 16,000 plus SKUs because of right. all the personalized combinations. If the idea is personalization. It's going to be pretty hard to right. get all that And done. so we want to make sure that when we do it, we really do it right. You know, yeah. it could be something super innovative where, you know, we have a digital printer in a store and you, you can see your fabric printed right there. You can take away swatches right there. And so, you know, we'll wait until we can really do it right. Do you feel like there is sort of this, I keep hearing about this retail resurgence and I think maybe it was the opening of Hudson Yards that I got everybody excited about <laughs> that. But I'm curious about your thoughts on, especially with your background in kind of fashion and beauty, whether you think that how much, especially, you know, again, these upstart DTC online brands are driving so much of this. I mean, you do walk down some streets in Soho and it's only those brands. They're the ones buying up that space. They're the ones renting that out. Is there kind of a physical retail resurgence or did it never actually die? And was that just headlines? Well, I think ultimately what the customer wants is a frictionless experience. And that can mean something different to different people. So I think for some people, that means never going into a store. That means always converting online because that's the easier thing for them to do. I think for some people, that does still mean going into a showroom or a retail experience where they can physically sit on the sofa or try on the dress or whatever the product is that you're selling. And so I think that means different things to different people. But I think what's important in a retail experience is that even if you do have a store, that should still be a frictionless experience. And so I think gone are the days that anyone is willing to wait in a really long line or queue to pay, right? So I think if you're going to have a retail experience, it still needs to be really frictionless. And you really have to invest in that. Yeah. That's not mm-hmm. going to be just something you do. Um, what as a marketer kind of worries you? What worries me as a marketer? Um, I think in the startup space, um, there's a perception that they've become a little formulaic. Like it, everyone works with the same brand agency and same PR agency. <laughs> that same pink that I've and seen like everywhere. X plus Y plus Z equals success, right? And I think that's far from the truth. And so I think nowadays, you know, Arguably, it is easier to start a business and access to capital is a little bit easier. Um, But I think you have to be really strategic and smart about how you're acquiring customers and really building a fanatical customer base and a brand that people love because that's what's going to get them to stick around for a couple of years. Called the return of brand and no more formulas. Yes. Amazing. AJ, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. 
that's all for today's episode of Making Marketing a Show by Digiday. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, here's what you need to do. Head to your iTunes store, search for a show Making Marketing and leave us a review and a rating. It helps new listeners find us. I'll also read my favorite reviews here at the end of the show or tweet at me at hashtag Making Marketing. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week. Before we end the episode, a quick message from Sandy Hook Promise. Last year was the highest number of school shootings on record. As kids across the country head back to school, we must protect them and teach them how to prevent violence before it happens. Sandy Hook Promise is planning a new back-to-school PSA to show parents, kids, and educators the importance of knowing the signs for gun violence prevention. We're looking for media donations to help us spread the message. Please visit sandyhookpromise.org media to get involved and help us protect children from violence in schools.